heroes are righteous and good, and sadly, sometimes they can be a little boring. Villains, meanwhile, are fascinating, dangerous, and complicated. Just try to imagine your favorite stories without characters like Hannibal Lecter, the Wicked Witch of the West, or Darth Vader. If we took them all away, then you know what? Clarice Starling might make jail visits to someone who passed a few bad checks. Dorothy Gale would find her way back to Kansas in maybe five minutes, 10 minutes tops. And Luke Skywalker's real dad would turn out to be an accountant named Stan. I'm Meg Wallitzer, and on this episode of Selected Shorts, a salute to villainy. Stay with us. You're listening to Selected Shorts, where our greatest actors transport us through the magic of fiction, one short story at a time. Villainy is a strange concept, because evil people might not call themselves evil. Maybe if they took one of those personality quizzes in a magazine, they would describe themselves as moderately ruthless. Like only a five on the ruthless scale. A fiction writer's job isn't usually to judge characters, but to let us see who they are in full. In this hour of Selected Shorts, we're going to hear stories that let us get closer than shouting range to a few different antagonists. The villain may be featured in the story or appear as something of a distant memory, but either way, they're definitely the reason we have a story to tell. One foe is famous in the political world, one is famous in the religious world, and one, another writer's creation, is famous in the world of fiction, specifically 19th century nautical fiction that might make you want to, and here's a hint, blubber. Let's move into our stories with something by Gish Jen. She's the writer of novels including The Resisters, as well as the recent collection of linked stories titled Thank You, Mr. Nixon. This piece is the title story from that collection, and it's delivered in the form of a letter to the former president. The narrator lets us know right away that Richard Nixon is spending his afterlife in hell. So yes, he's the villain here. Reading the story is a busy actor whose recent credits include the series 13 Reasons Why and The Sinner. Here's Cindy Chung performing Gish Jen's Thank You, Mr. Nixon. Thank you, Mr. Nixon. Mr. Richard Nixon, Ninth Ring Road, Pit 1A. <laughs> Dear Mr. Nixon, I don't know if you will remember me, especially now that I am in heaven and you are in hell. I was one of the little girls you talked to when you came in 1972. Do you remember? Not the one in the famous picture. I was the other one. We were in a park in Hangzhou. That was your other stop besides Beijing and Shanghai, a famous beauty spot with a beautiful lake called West Lake. It was February, and you mostly had your hands in your pockets. Maybe your fingers were cold. First, you talked to the girl whose mother was right behind her. Of course, she smiled just the way she was supposed to when someone took that picture. Then you talked to a little boy who was dressed in a new coat, but who was actually supposed to be in the background. That's why he did not know which hand to reach out when you wanted to shake hands. Everyone laughed, but some people worried because they did not think he would talk to the boy. That was not the plan. And I was very embarrassed, but you did not seem to notice. Just as you did not seem surprised that it just so happened that the two girls you happened to run into in the park were wearing such beautiful coats. So new and perfect, kind of an orange-pink color. 
Nor were you surprised that when you asked where my mother was, I said, in the city. Shouldn't you have wondered what I could mean since we were in Hangzhou and Hangzhou was a city? In fact, my mother was living in Shanghai then because she had been assigned to a unit there. But probably you had no idea people were assigned anywhere. Anyway, my red scarf was a real red scarf. That really was what we wore if we were little red guards, and I really was a little red guard. But that was not my real coat. Actually, my mother had to piece it together out of two other coats. Because she sewed for a factory, though, it came out just as if it were made in a factory. Really, the whole China you saw was a tailor-made China, a Potemkin China, you might say. Not that anyone would have said that then. That is only how we talk in heaven, where we know all kinds of things. For example, we know that today there are still a lot of things that you cannot say in China, but back then there were even more. And while today you have to guess what you can't say, back then they would just tell you. <laughs> no one was allowed to shout, down with the U.S. imperialists, to your face. On the radio and TV, too, the phrase U.S. imperialists just suddenly disappeared, as if everyone forgot it all at once, which no one thought was particularly strange. We all knew how to forget, after all. We were good at it. Experts, you could say. And if there was a face we had mastered, it was a stone face, for things changed all the time. One day, Comrade Lin Biao was a hero, for example. The next day, we forgot he was ever there. The streets were cleaned up before you came, with certain slogans removed and new ones put up. The shelves of the stores were filled and people were made to stay at school and work late so that the streets would not be so crowded. Did you notice how few people there were around? Maybe you thought that was normal, but it was not normal. Just like the number of fish in Westlake was not normal. Did you think there were always so many beautiful carp waiting to be fed? Those of us students who were supposed to be background students in the park were told what to understand. What if the American journalists asked things like, do you have enough to eat and drink? Or do you like America? Our teacher asked us. Do you understand them? Of course, that was a stupid question because anyone who answered yes would not have been picked to be a background student to begin with. But no one said it was stupid. Instead, we promised that even if the translator spoke perfect Mandarin, we would not understand him. We were not supposed to understand anything about matters like a man going to the moon either which was easy since most of us did not actually know the American imperialists had put a man on the moon until we were told we didn't know anything about it. <laughs> As for whether we were supposed to volunteer, we had gangs of red guards breaking into our homes and destroying everything. Much less, they took people out into the yard and beat them to death. You may guess whether we were supposed to say these things or not. No, we were smart. And having been told to be neither humble nor arrogant, neither cold nor hot, we were exactly that. Though I was so happy in my new coat, it was hard not to be warm with happiness. Indeed, I thought it the most beautiful coat in the world until I saw your wife's red coat. Can I call her Pat now that we are all dead? <laughs> she did not wear her red coat to the park. That was a disappointment. At the park, she wore a fur coat, maybe because it was so cold. But I saw the red coat later, 
And anyway, we students all knew about the red coat. We had heard about the red coat. It was already a famous coat. Of course, we understood too very well that we did not love it. Though China had become a sea of dark blue and gray and black, with just a little color allowed for us children, for everyone else, a red coat was bourgeois, after all. It was anti-revolutionary. It was corrupt and corrupting. Couldn't we feel its pull? That was because it was venal, imperialist, American, beautiful. No, we did not love it. We did not think how suitable it was that a beautiful coat came from a country whose name in Chinese literally meant beautiful. China might be Zhongguo, the middle country, but America was Meiguo, the beautiful country. A beautiful country full of beautiful coats. What could that be but evil? The history books say that China opened when you shook hands with Chairman Mao, but I think it began with that coat. Because if on the outside, we were neither humble nor arrogant, neither cold nor hot. On the inside, we were torn. We loved our country, but it was not red flags we wanted. It was red coats. Thank you, Mr. Nixon, for bringing that coat. Here in heaven, we know much more about your situation than we did back then. It is terrible that people in your country called you Tricky Dick. That is so much more personal than plain capitalist running dog or petty bourgeois individualist. And it is terrible that, that they made so much fun of you because of your sweat. Is that why you wore makeup when you were in China? Up here in heaven, there's an American interpreter who says he accompanied you on your visit and that he once saw a glob of pancake makeup hanging down from a hair in your nose. Of course, if American people did not like for their leaders to sweat so much, that is something Chinese people can understand. Really, it is just lucky that we are not as sweaty as you, also that we do not have hair in our noses. As for how upset the American people became when they found out that you had asked some people to break into a hotel room and steal some papers, that we did not understand. Certainly, it was not so good. But from the Chinese point of view, it wasn't that bad. Think about how many people Chairman Mao killed, after all. Of course, between Vietnam and Cambodia, you had some blood under your fingernails, too. But Chairman Mao, even here in heaven, no one can even say how many people he killed between his crazy ideas and his purges, whether it was 45 million or just 25 million. Scholars are still bashing clouds over this. Maybe they just miss arguing. But let's just say that no one claims Mao killed, say, four or five million, because we need to be careful. If the angels laugh too hard, they can fall off a cloud and crack a halo. Of course, some people said he gave China back our pride, and that is true, too. Anyway, you can see why I myself am not sure you should be in hell, much less in the ninth ring and in the first pit. Didn't you lose your job when you were alive? Wasn't that punishment enough? And Mr. But it scared the Russians to see China and America make friends. That was something only a red baiter like you could have pulled off. The more we thought about it, the more we felt you were the best enemy we ever had, Mr. Nixon. Maybe it is no surprise that when Deng Xiaoping opened the door to the West, my family jumped into the capitalist sea almost right away. My father kept his job in the number six chemical factory for a while, but my mother retired and moved back home, 
where we started a small coat business. As we did not yet dare design our own coats, I copied famous designs from abroad, starting with Pat's coat. Of course, we had to make the coats in dark blue and black and gray because those were the colors we had. Still, the design was beautiful. And my mother was good at sewing. And we soon realized that if we made the coats big enough for the foreign tourists who were starting to come visit, we could sell them in the street markets. And sure enough, the foreigners liked them, especially if we tailored them to fit them perfectly and added whatever pockets or plackets or cuffs they liked. We did this overnight, which impressed them. Our little company was successful. But after a while, the foreigners began to bring our coats back home to their countries to sell, and that made people dissatisfied. Because it turned out, people in the US did not like coats that said, made in China. A nice man explained that to us. His name was Arnie Xu, an overseas Chinese man who said that the problem was something called prejudice. If you took a coat and said it was made in Italy, he said, American people would like it very much. So why don't we just add a label that says made in Italy, my father said. Mr. Arnie said that we couldn't because if the American authorities found out, they would be mad and confiscate everything. However, he said that he had heard some factories had closed down in Italy. And so if we bought a factory and did just a few things there, like sew on the buttons, maybe we could label the coats made in Italy and then American people would buy them. Buy a factory. In China, we did not have such ideas. How could we buy a factory? We asked. But Mr. Arnie said he knew some people who knew this kind of thing, a family by the name of Ku. They lived in Hong Kong. And then sure enough, he asked them and it worked. In fact, he made such a good arrangement. The Italian people were angry at us, even though actually we were happy to employ them. And actually we really liked them. We liked their food, never mind if they copied their noodles from Chinese people. <laughs> we liked the way they thought about family. We liked the way they called each other auntie and uncle, just like we did. But they did not like us. They did not like the Chinese food trucks that appeared at our factories. They did not like our working on Sundays. And on our side, though we liked them generally, we did not like their long lunches or their long vacations. We Chinese people did what it took to get the job done. They were more interested in play than in work. With the result that even now, there are Italian people who will not hang out on the same cloud as us. If they see us sitting together, they will move away. And quietly, quietly, they will call us monkeys. Very quietly, of course, because this is heaven and no one wants to be kicked out. We try to tell them, we never meant to take over your factories. And that is true. We cannot speak for the Chinese people who came after us. We do not even know them. A lot of them came from Wenzhou. But speaking for ourselves, we were just trying to solve a problem. If the American people had accepted coats that said made in China, we would probably never know where Italy was. That is the truth. But it is also true that my father is not here with us now because he just wanted to sell as many coats as possible. No one wants to pay for coats made one at a time, he said. He believed that the right way to make a coat was to make all the sleeves at once and then all the lapels. He believed that the right way to cut cloth was the way that left the least waste, not the way that made the coat fall this way or that. He said no one was ever going to cut a coat on the bias in any factory he owned. 
The difference between Chinese people and Italian people is that Italian people don't want to listen, he said. They don't want the world to change. But according to my father, the world had changed, like it or not. Price was king. Maybe you can see how he ended up in hell with you. Up here in heaven, I do not have to do anything. But still, I like to draw coats. I guess that is just how we human beings are. We like to keep busy. I don't know why your wife Pat hasn't come to heaven. Maybe she is around here somewhere and I just haven't seen her. I do not think you are a saint. But in the end, you brought so many coats into our lives. Red coats, gold coats, orange coats, plum coats, short coats, long coats, belted coats, quilted coats. You brought fur-trimmed coats and leather-trimmed coats, double-breasted coats and single-breasted coats, zip-up coats and three-in-one coats. We have coats you can wear in the snow and coats you can wear in the pouring rain. Even now, I change my coat every day. And while I do not always wear a red coat, I never wear a dark blue coat or a gray coat or a black coat because I wore enough of those down on earth. Also, I use my English name. Do you know what that is? Trisha. <laughs> it is a heaven I could never have imagined. And so I thank you, Mr. Nixon. Actually, if I look down at China now and see the lights and the malls, I can still hear what people used to say about the Western way of life, that it is venal, that it is imperialist, that it is bourgeois, that it is evil. You let a big genie out of a bottle, a gaudy, awful genie, some would say. Maybe it has ruined what was left of Chinese culture. People say that, and it is possible. Still, I am glad that you came. Coats, 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 coats. I thank you with all my heart, Mr. Nixon. Eternally yours, Trisha Song. That was Cindy Chung's performance of Thank You, Mr. Nixon by Gish Jen. She's such a funny writer, starting with Nixon living in hell in pit 1A. That 1A really made me laugh because it's such a specific conviction about where exactly our crooked and, yes, sweaty former president is spending eternity. But Jen is just as interested in where her characters belong on Earth, where they fit in or don't culturally, societally, emotionally, as the world shifts and changes. Starting with this one small moment between a little girl and a big man, Gish Jen powers us through half a century of history. After Chung's performance, Jen joined an engaging discussion as part of the Thalia Book Club series at Symphony Space, and she joked about the humor in her work. I'm just funny. <laughs> you know, my husband is here, and he will tell you I will make jokes in the middle of the night. Do you know what I mean? I wake up and I sleep. And, you know, I, it's interesting, though, because I've, I've noticed that, you know, a lot of people seem to think it's defensive. And I have to say, I just love to laugh. You know, I don't think it's always defensive. I just love it. And I love people who love to laugh. And especially, I love people who love to laugh loudly. <laughs> Jen's new collection embarks on a journey through U.S.-Chinese relations and the human encounters when East meets West. She said blending humor and seriousness comes naturally to her as a Chinese-American. 
who knows how culture gets handed on. And, but it, it is true that I do come from the land, or my parents came from the land of sweet sour. You know what I mean? I've always liked the mixed tone. I, I like things with a complicated tone that doesn't resolve. And I, I know that not everybody likes that, but I, I, I actually prefer it. You know, when I find myself writing a story that is both extremely funny and extremely sad, I keep it. During the discussion, Jen answered questions about her writing process. You know, Gertrude Stein said that the artist works by locating the world in himself. Of course, we all wish she said herself, but she did say himself. I've really taken that to heart. I mean, I do think that we develop nerves, you know, as a result of our contact to the world. So I often start by trying to locate such a nerve, you know, and I often locate the nerve because I laugh. An example is like my second novel was Mona in the Promised Land. It's about a girl who turns Jewish. And I had these note cards and I came across this idea like Mona Chang turns Jewish. And I thought, oi, I can't write that. <laughs> and then as soon as I had that reaction, oi, I can't write that in this laugh, I thought, ah, there's a nerve there. And that nerve turned into a novel with the stories too. So I'm kind of, I'm just kind of mining around for a nerve. Uh, once I find my nerve, I will back up and ask, you know, are these the characters I need to, to, you know, to explore this particular nerve? And then I will just follow it. You know, it's not like it's all intuitive. You know, I do have, you know, a technical mind that sort of says, you know what, I really need this third character. You know, I really need a foil to this character to really bring out this, 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 the other thing, right? I will set things up, but then finally I will just kind of follow it out. And I, I don't worry so much about emotional depletion as I worry about losing the nerve, you know, like losing track of it. And that's why I do not want anybody to talk to me. You know what I mean? I'm just, I'm, I'm just kind of, you know, this thing is kind of shivering there. I'm, I'm saying, what is that shimmer about? That was Gish Jen speaking at Symphony Space about her collection of short stories titled Thank You, Mr. Nixon. When we return, ping pong and a white whale, but not at the same time. After all, whales are barred from ping pong. Surfing a ball through one's blowhole would definitely be considered an unfair advantage. I'm Meg Wallitzer. You're listening to Selected Shorts, recorded live in performance at Symphony Space in New York City and at other venues nationwide. Welcome back. This is Selected Shorts, where our greatest actors transport us through the magic of fiction, one short story at a time. I'm Meg Wallitzer. And speaking of transporting, after a long wait, it is finally time to go places again. And the trip I'm offering comes in the palm of your hand. It's the new story anthology from Selected Shorts and Algonquin Books, Small Odysseys, available at your favorite indie bookshop. We're dedicating our entire hour to stories of antagonists in fiction. If you missed our first story, which incorporated the very real historical figure of Richard Nixon, you've still got time to hear it. Head to SelectedShorts.org, click the big subscribe button, and you'll find links for every podcast platform you can think of. And while you're listening, please share your list of favorite fictional baddies. As far as villains go, it's hard to top Pontius Pilate. If the name doesn't ring a bell, he's the Roman governor who oversaw the trial and execution of Jesus. 
But in this next story, it's Pilate, not Jesus, who enjoys a second coming of sorts. It's by writer Greg Ames, the author of the novel Buffalo Lockjaw and the story collection Funeral Platter. And as you'll hear in this tale of a rehab rivalry, he's good at mashing up the silly, the dark, and the fantastical. To read it, we got a very funny actor who showed off his comedic chops in series such as Mom and his more dramatic side in projects like For All Mankind. Here's Nate Cordry performing Greg Ames' story, Playing Ping Pong with Pontius Pilate. Playing Ping Pong with Pontius Pilate. In the YMCA sauna, Bill Drucker, a pharmacist, was holding forth on the subject of mutual funds, pros and cons, when the door banged open and an icy blast of air slapped everybody's cheeks and chests. Pontius Pilate strode in, his wool robes shushing against his naked, hairy ankles. Hello, boys, he said. Father Delmont, who was seated next to me, cinched his towel at his waist and left the sauna. Pilate insinuated himself between Drucker and me on the wooden bench and tapped my knee with his white tape fingers. I've been looking for you, he said. We're on a three, my friend. He was referring to the YMCA table tennis tournament. Earlier in the day, I'd been loitering at the bulletin board, eager to see who I would play in the third round of the tourney. When the results were posted, I shuddered at the name of my opponent. Tough draw, said Brad Thomas, reading over my shoulder. And the cramped sauna, it was hard to ignore Pilate's presence. He shook his thin body out of his robe and cozied up next to me. The stale stench of athlete's foot in musty wool assaulted my nostrils. Humming what sounded like good day sunshine, Pilate ladled water over the hot ceramic rocks. Warm enough, my friend? Greasy mustache hairs curled down into his mouth. His bearded face was sharp and narrow like an axe blade covered in moss. I ignored him. Sweat rolled down my cheeks in the diabolical heat. Talk to Ed Ramos about those mutual funds, Bill, I said to Drucker over Pilate's head. He'll tell you what's what. He's a financial advisor, I think. Pilate nodded. That, he said, is an important job. I was once the governor of Judea. Thankless work, all in all, but it had its perks. He smiled. I sentenced people to death on a whim, things like that, but I find ping pong a much more soothing activity, don't you? Of course, one must retain something of the executioner's calm concentration to be truly effective. See it three. He strolled out of the sauna, whistling a dirge. Bill Drucker mopped his shiny dome with his towel. What the hell is that getup? It's a Halloween costume? I laughed. Pilot was an odd number, all right, but we were all deranged in one way or another. They should revoke his membership, Drucker said. He creeps people out. Two other members, both seated behind us in their towels, joined the discussion. But what if it's not a role he's playing, one of them said. I mean, what if he's really the historical Judas or whoever? You mean Pontius Pilate, the other said. The guy who sent Christ to the cross? Don't you know anything? So sorry, I'm not caught up on my Bible homework. Guys, hey, take it easy, I said, turning to look at them. Don't worry about Pilate. I'll beat him. As the reigning champion, I felt pretty good about my chances, but Pilate was formidable in his own right. Nobody really knew what he was capable of. I had to admit I was worried about facing him. 
We were scheduled for table one in the Tony Carlucci Memorial Room on the second floor. In the locker room, I reviewed all that I knew about my opponent's style. Pilot used an unorthodox variation of a Korean penhold grip. His forehand was crisp and accurate. His backhand confident, reliably defensive. He would commit very few unforced errors. He was patient, calculating, and cruel. What can be said about Pilot's footwork? Occasionally, in a tough match, he used a lateral crossover technique that seemed all but impossible in his heavy robes. When performed properly, the crossover is the most graceful way to cover four feet of space rather quickly. Crossing one dusty sandal smoothly behind the other, Pilot could move from the backhand corner to the forehand corner the blick of an eye. In short, he had an all-around game, no weaknesses. Most guys wore lightweight shorts and T-shirts. It could get awfully hot during summer, and there was no AC in the main building. But Pilot didn't seem to register the heat. He always dressed in wool robes and sandals. His dirt-encrusted toes, jagged yellow nails, never clipped, poked out from beneath the frayed hem of his robe. An adversary could not monitor Pilot's legs for clues as to which direction he might lean on his returns, and he often baffled his opponents with cross-table winners. We'd all heard the rumor that a dress code would soon be instituted, banning strange and unconventional attire from match play, but I argued against it. We didn't need to start discriminating, I said. Where would it end? Surely the weight and hang of Pilot's vestments counteracted any advantage to recede from them. No matter how you sliced it, though, he was a tough opponent. I had two hours to kill before the match. I sat by my locker and tried to pray, mouthing the words I've been taught in rehab, and I felt foolish and hypocritical. At Hurley House, they told us to get involved with activities, to stay busy, and to say a prayer when we felt squirrely. Go to meetings, make phone calls, don't sit around and waste time, they said. My mind was a dangerous neighborhood, they said, and I was supposed to stay out of it as much as possible. <laughs> I joined the YMCA the day after I got out of Hurley House. The Y was perfect for me, a place I could go during the day, a place to hide. Within a year, I had mastered most of the group activities. I've always been good at games. Ping pong pleased me in a way that not many other things did. I enjoyed the repetition of it and could get lost in its rhythms. I stopped obsessing about drugs and alcohol. I made some friends, started to look people in the eye. Every night after work, I took the bus to the Y. Ping pong, in some ways, became a religion to me. At one minute after three, Pontius Pilate bustled into the Colucci room with his duffel bag slung over his shoulder. He was a wiry little dude, short in his sandals, and he exuded an aura of self-destructive confidence. The pungent smell of chlorine and cherry cough drops wafted behind him. I need to stretch my limbs, he said, and dropped his duffel by the humming Coke machine in the corner. Or are you in some big hurry to begin? The mind games had already begun. He knew the match was scheduled to begin precisely at three. He was attempting to determine my threshold for frustration. Fine, I said. Do what you got to do. He winked at me. Thanks, babe and he launched into a ferocious display of violent kickboxing and taekwondo maneuvers. Hi-yah! Hi-yah! He punched and kicked the air. Then he segued into light aerobic exercises. One, two. One, two. <laughs> Twisting his torso from side to side. Busy day in the pool, he said. 
and dropped to the floor. Newborn babies and their dads. He pulled each thigh to his chest, counted to seven, then released. Kids under the age of 12 should not be allowed in a pool. They urinate. Pilate scissored his hairy legs above him, his hands on his hips. A little chilly outdoors, eh? Supposed to be sunny today, high of 70. He leapt to his feet and turned his back to me. As he bent over to touch his toes, he flipped aside his robes and addressed me from between his legs. Ever read the Gospel of John, he asked. A fair assessment of my role in history. I found no fault in Jesus and attempted to release him. Hey man, I said, no more theatrics. We're gonna start soon or what? He held up his wrapped index finger, the soiled adhesive tape was sweaty and unraveling. Jagged edged, it still bore the teeth marks where he'd bitten it off. First things first, he said and bowed his head. Let us pray to Jupiter. After what appeared to be some form of silent meditation, during which his lips moved quickly, he peeked open one eye and grinned at me. Ready? I nodded, stone-faced. We volleyed for serve. He won and held the ball up for me to see. Pontius Pilate to serve, he announced. The match was finally underway. Pilate hit with remarkable power. I noticed that he changed his grip on almost every serve to prevent me from anticipating his next move. He grunted over every swing. The ball came fast and high, taking me by surprise. Serves blew by me. That ball is gone, he said, as I chased the ball halfway across the room. It was banished, ha <laughs> driven from the table, gone, like religious faith, like romantic love, like an unattended plate in a Chinese buffet. Once he got rolling, it was hard to shut him up. Pilate was a massive shit talker. <laughs> Under certain circumstances, he said, blinking at me, can a rock be both igneous and sedimentary? I said nothing. I think it can, he said. Still, I said nothing. We played without speaking for six or eight points. Pilate calmly flicked his wrist to return my serves, singing quietly to himself, hot-blooded chicken sea. <laughs> The ball kept coming back at me. Got a fever, 103. No matter what I threw at him, hard or soft, he returned it. Pilate was a reactor. He recognized all variations of spin. He was savage with my short serves, merciless with side top spins. If I stood too far back, he would drop a short underspin return just over the net, where it would die quivering. If I crowded the table, he bounced a high smoker into my sternum. The score was 12-8, Pilate. Ball in hand, he swayed over the ball, over the table, taunting me. I am going to serve now, but where will it go? <laughs> Nobody knows. Look out, could be hard, could be soft. He lurched forward, grunted, and served up a short side spin that slid off my end of the table like a cube of jello. Thirteen for me, he sang, but only nine for you. Eight, I said, low. Oh, right, eight. You're so honest. How commendable. Just serve the ball and stop yapping, old man. <laughs> Heavens, am I bothering you? Terribly sorry. And he rifled the quick serve into my abdomen. Fourteen, he said. I battled back and won seven consecutive points. 
The ball streaked over the net, a flash of white. Soon I had him on his heels. He committed his first unforced error. Christ, he said. <laughs> At 17-16, my lead, with the momentum clearly in my favor, Pilot cried, oh wait, I stubbed my toe, time out. And he hobbled over to a nearby chair. He sipped a plastic cup of water and fanned a towel in front of his face. Grimacing, he twisted his foot up and closely inspected his filthy, wrinkled arch. A minute passed. I refused to show any reaction. Rubbing his toes, he smiled at me and said, let's get to know each other a little bit, okay? These tournaments are always so impersonal. I'm Pontius. And what's your name again? Uh, Nick. He squeezed his big toe. Pleased to know you, Nick. Are you Catholic by any chance? I knew I shouldn't answer, but I did. My parents were, I said. He nodded. Funny how Catholics have such a burning desire to embrace Rome, although Romans were their greatest persecutors for centuries. He kneaded his toes. Ever been to the Vatican? Jesum crimity, that's a sight, huh? One thing was clear. He would stop at nothing to defeat me. He hoped to make me question my faith right there in the Tony Carlici Memorial Room, but I didn't have any faith, none that I was consciously aware of anyway, so his little salvo missed the mark. No more talk. I headed back to my side of the table. Time's up. That's how you play the game, Nick, he winced. My foot really hurts, then gets swollen. But if you cannot allow me another minute of rest, I understand I shall limp over and try to compete. I didn't reply. Pilot remained seated. He rubbed the sole of his foot. I'm curious, he said. Do you like me? Oh, man, just give me a break, I said. What's a reasonable question? Theologians portray me as reluctant and weak. He looked up at me. By vilifying me, they neutralized the conflict between the early Christian church and Roman authority. They knew they would have to iron out their differences eventually, and they needed a scapegoat. Voila, c'est moi. I'm the fall guy. It made sense, but I didn't want to think about it. I wanted to win the match and continue on to the quarterfinals. I wanted to keep going to my meetings, climb the ladder at my job, marry a woman, start a family. Pilot lowered his eyes. You know, I am a person too, Nick. And I've made some mistakes, but he waved his hand. Sniffling, he turned his head. Sorry, he said, rising unsteadily to his feet. He came over to my side of the table. My mother passed away a few years ago, you see, and uh, I moved here for work last year and haven't made a lot of connections yet. Do you know what that feels like, Nick? To be so alone in the world? Won't you be my friend? For a moment, I attempted to console him, but I remained silent. What was your childhood like, Nick? He had not yet picked up his paddle. He leaned his right hip casually against the side of the table. I'm interested. You can tell me. I promise I won't tell a soul. I examined the paddle in my hand. It's not important, I said. Don't worry. I know all about it, and I want to help you. The question is, Will you let me help you? In Hurley House, they told us to seek a higher power, meaning anything greater than ourselves, to say right-sized. My sponsor said I could 
live a rich spiritual life without pledging allegiance to any particular religion, but I needed to find a god of my own understanding. At first, it sounded like a load of hot steaming crap. I mean, you want me to build my own god like some kind of divine Dagwood sandwich, but what were the alternatives? My best thinking usually landed me in the holding center of the emergency room. For years, I'd look for God in bottles and books and women and sex. None of those options worked for me. I sat through our daily meetings in Hurley House with my arms crossed on my chest. Couldn't they see that I was not one of them? But every day I listened to others talk about their higher powers and I became envious. Anything that helped me get outside of myself and become useful to others could be considered a higher power, my sponsor told me. Trying to diminish my ego, I mopped the floors and took out the trash. I made my bed every morning and I waited. God never cradled me in his smooth palm and stroked me like a beloved pet hamster, but one morning I woke up and did not hate everybody and everything that I saw. Are you considering my offer of friendship? Pilate's chapped lips parted to reveal a warm, generous smile, the smile of a kind uncle. It confused and frightened and intrigued me, but I knew the ways of manipulative men. They had been my teachers, and I had become one of them. He spun the paddle in his hand. Did you learn my name, Pontius Pilate, in Sunday school? Did they talk about me quite a bit? I bet they did. You're going to be okay, I said to him, trying to be compassionate. Pilate let loose a huge laugh. Oh, I know what you're trying to do, he said. You want to be a more spiritual person, yes? A responsible, caring, sober adult. It's part of your recovery, this spiritual awakening. Is that not what you were told? I know you better than you think, Nick, you bad boy. Listen to me. They are lying to you, and deep down you know they're lying. They tell you to find a God of your own understanding, but how can you have a religion or a God of any kind along with this burning anger? You want to let it out, and it must come out. Enough, I said, scraping my paddle on the edge of the table. Let's play. Let's play, he echoed in a vicious voice. Oh, I'm sorry. Sorry, make way for the only person in the whole world, His Majesty King Baby. He glared at me. Damn it, I know you, Nick. Hell, I am you. You live for the buzz you get from acting out, drinking, sex, gambling, but you can't sit with your feelings, can you? We're getting to the core of Nick, and you can't handle it, can you? I steadied myself against the table. If I attacked him, I would be disqualified. If I remained silent, he would think he'd rattled me. Pilate stroked his beard with his filthy thumb and forefinger. You were a terrible embarrassment to your family for years, Nick. I have heard many stories in these corridors, but none sadder than yours. And you think it's all different now. Your parents died one after the other before you could reconcile with either of them. You stole so much from them. You betrayed them. But how can you make amends with the dead people? It's too late, Nick. You missed your chance. It's my serve, I said. No, he said and waved his hand, flourishing the white ball. It is not. He bounced the ball once, twice on the table. His hand closed over it. The death of our loved ones is traumatic, Nick, he said. Perhaps a drink would take the sting away. You pass a dozen bars every night after work. Who would know? No harm in one cold beer, is there? And he served. 
we battled back and forth. Winners, volleys, and unforced errors. We were tied at 21, tied at 27. My wristbands were drenched with sweat. My thin t-shirt clung to my back. I lunged and skidded around the table. The soles of my Adidas squeaked on the polished hardwood floor. Tuck, 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 tuck. The ball flew over the net. For a moment, Pilot held the ball and watched me with a mocking smile on his face. Nick, he said, please know that I want to help you. I'm here for you. I looked up at the plaster swirls in the water-damaged ceiling. The custodian had done a nice temporary patch job, but he'd left the crumbling sheetrock foundation untouched. The whole thing would have to come down eventually. I'm curious, Pilot said. Do you take wine at communion? I wanted to pound the living shit out of him. He was a confused little man in a reeking Salvation Army bathrobe. I could have easily slammed him to the floor, but I wasn't going to give in and give him the satisfaction. Tired? Pilot asked. He looked dry, rested, self-assured, barely winded. No, I said, but I was. I had never felt so drained. Smiling, Pilot opened his mouth and revealed the clutter of stained, crisscrossed teeth. There's no need for us to be so competitive, Nick, he said. Some nights we should go out for a few beers and perhaps a fish fry. How's that sound? Not interested. Pilot was hiding inside his body, peeking out at me. His teeth were like cracked pottery shards wedged into his gums. I imagined yanking him out myself with forceps and dragging him to a mirror. I wanted him to stare into his own weathered face. I almost felt sorry for him until he sent a spinning corkscrew serve into my abdomen when I wasn't looking. Heads up, he said. Stay alert. We continued to trade points back and forth. When the score climbed to 31-30, my lead, Pilot dropped his paddle on the floor. I see a hairline crack, he said, bending over it. I'm afraid we'll have to suspend the match. He extended his arm, told me back, even though I had remained where I was. Don't touch it, Nick. We need to get this paddle analyzed by an outside panel of judges. Pick it up, I said, remaining where I was. This will be a good lesson for you. Pilot pouted and kicked the edge of the table. You have no idea what it's like for me, he said. God doomed me to walk the earth for eternity, engaged in mindless activities with fools. I come to this why only to be ridiculed, and don't you see? I did all I could for Jesus Christ. I did all I could for mankind. Read the book of John. I did not want him to die. That's a sad story, I said. Get ready. Look at me, babe, Pilate said. I'm a mess over here. I picked up this awful robe at an Amvet's even the drifters in Judea wore better threads. He clasped his hand before his chest as if in prayer. Have mercy on me. I bounced the ball on the table. I like to believe that I thrived under pressure. Pick up your paddle, I said. I'm sorry for how everything has turned out in your life, Pilate said. I know you're suffering, Nick. I can see it on your face. Your pain rides shotgun when you drive, pushing your passenger up against the door. I bounced the ball on the table. Pick up your paddle, I said again. I'm about to do you a favor. In Hurley House, a guy named Florida Frank, a graduate who visited us weekly to share his story, told us that he performed one act of service each day. He wouldn't let his head hit the pillow, he said, until he'd done something good, however small for somebody else. He'd open a door for someone or he'd send an email saying he was thinking of someone or he'd listen to a sponsee drone on about his problems when all he, Florida Frank, really wanted to do was watch the damn TV.
Hey, he said, this was a small penance for being such a selfish prick for so many years. Many nights I lay in bed thinking about what he'd said. Had I done anything that day, I wondered, to make life a little better for someone else? The answer, more often than not, was no. I thought a lot about heliotropism, how plants turn toward what keeps them alive. How amazing. How natural. The majority of human beings probably do the same. But there are some of us, and for a long time I counted myself among them, who stubbornly refuse to take in what we need to thrive. And then we get to say, look at what the world has done to me, though we have done it to ourselves. Let's quit together. Pilate stepped around the table and stood beside the net. We'll both walk out, a double forfeit. I'll buy the first round at the bar. The desire to lose on purpose, to burn my whole life down again, was still so alluring. The hardest drug to kick was righteous indignation. Look at what has been done to me. Go back to your side of the table, I said. Pick up your fucking paddle, and don't make me say it again. Eyes lowered, Pilate did as he was told. My serve, I announced, and held the ball up over my head. Match point. He clutched his paddle with both hands. You can't win, he said, getting into his stance. I'll rip you apart, kid. Pilate was stubborn. How much longer could he hold out, furious and resentful at the world? 10,000 years? Until he couldn't even remember why he was so angry in the first place? I doubted that he would ever be honest with himself. He whined and sulked like a child. He pointed his finger at everyone but himself. To what lengths would he be willing to go to change his life? That was up to him. I could only share the most hard-earned lesson of my life. The idea that was only just then finding its way into words. You have to earn forgiveness, I said. And I served up a beauty. Thank you. Thank you. That was Nate Cordry at the Getty Center in Los Angeles reading Greg Ames's story, Playing Ping Pong with Pontius Pilate. The title of the story is also my new favorite tongue twister. Happily, I no longer have to keep attempting that one about the girl at the seashore selling seashells, which never made any sense as a story, because who would actually buy seashells when they're basically lying at your feet and you can get them for free? But I digress. Our final story that presents a real antagonist comes from the late writer Paul West. West wrote a bit of everything, poems, nonfiction, novels, short stories. He even wrote memoirs about learning to swim and recovering from a stroke. This very short piece embraces the great white whale itself, Moby Dick, and leaves Ahab's madness behind. It's performed by the actor Diane Venora, whose films include Heat and The Jackal. Here she is in Paul West's story, Captain Ahab, a novel by the White Whale. I, too, alone survive to tell thee. A whale tells this white as Biscay froth a tail black as caviar. 
I almost lost heart. Albinos do. Doomed, special, while feeling like the rest. We're dark unto ourselves. We? I am the only one. I have never bred. I have never seen a white male or a white mate. I never had company save for him. Only during brief heaven, a mother who nudged and nourished. Shunned, I go from ocean to ocean, falling in love with icebergs <laughs> and uh, fluffy fog and nearer shore with snow and polar bears. I am forbidden nothing, but there is nothing I can have. What sex am I? Did Ahab know? Squinting aft, I see him rib cage and all. As the years went by, he began to rattle, <laughs> then to chime. I read his last will and testament from his lips, then took him down for the count, poor piscunyak of a mariner. <laughs> then I whale hummed at him just to be friendly. I wanted somehow to swing him loose, then pop him down, minnow frail, feather small. Install him on the bubbly mound of one vast kidney according to Jonah law. A pet, a familiar, a love. But dislodge him I could not, and I soon knew his coming for what it was, a test in the form of a sign, a sign in the form of a test. Could I brook his presence without wanting friendship? Ahab was my birthmark. Yes, Ishmael. Art thou sleeping there below? Then answer would come. Moby, I am thine forever. Oh, it was all hopeless. Call me, I began. But my still thundering jelly of a heart floated upward through my mouth, jump a thump. And all that's left is an unfolded compass rose miming its thanks, <laughs> murmuring a tune.
That was Diane Venora reading Captain Ahab, a novel by the White Whale by Paul West. As novels go, it's one of the shortest I've ever encountered. But then again, are we sure we should trust the translation? Who knows how long the original was? It was obviously written in whale song. And with that, we wrap our very brief survey of villains in short fiction. We tend to think we already know these famous villains and their misdeeds, but I'm sure I'm not the first person to point out that a Wikipedia page is not the same as art. Facts about someone's life really do matter, but we need more than facts. We need a writer's vision and voice and wild leaps of invention to turn a villain into a really great character. I'm Meg Wallitzer. Thanks for joining me for Selected Shorts. Selected Shorts is produced by Jennifer Brennan. Our literary team is Matthew Love, Drew Richardson, and Vivienne Woodward. Our director of marketing is Mary Shimkin. Our radio producers are Sarah Montague and Jenny Falcon. The readings are recorded by Miles B. Smith. Our programs presented at the Getty Center in Los Angeles are recorded by Phil Richards. Our mix engineer for this episode was Dennis Jacobson. Our theme music is David Peterson's That's the Deal, performed by the Deerdorf Peterson Group. Selected Shorts is supported by the Dungannon Foundation, creator of the Ray Award for the short story. Support is also provided by the NYC COVID-19 Response and Impact Fund in the New York Community Trust, the Howard Gilman Foundation, the Schubert Foundation, the Sharina Endowment Fund, the Blanchette Hooker Rockefeller Fund, the Achelis and Bodman Foundation, the Henry Nias Foundation, the Fan Fox and Leslie R. Samuels Foundation, the Michael Tuck Foundation, the Vida Foundation, the Axe Houghton Foundation, the Lemberg Foundation, and the Grodzins Fund. Selected Shorts is made possible by the National Endowment for the Arts and with public funds from the New York State Council on the Arts with the support of Governor Kathy Hochul and the New York State Legislature. Additional support is provided by the Isaiah Sheffer Fund for new initiatives. Symphony Space thanks our generous supporters, including our board of directors, producer circle, and members who make our programs possible with their annual support. Selected Shorts is produced and distributed by Symphony Space. Mm -hmm.